All right. So we are going to be in Luke chapter 3, uh, and we're going to be in verse 7 of that chapter. Luke chapter 3. And once you are there in your Bibles, uh, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can be seated. So as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, we are now in chapter 3, seven verses in. And to catch you up to speed on what we've been looking at so far in chapter 3 of Luke, uh, we've been introduced to John the Baptist in his adult ministry. So John the Baptist, remember we were introduced to him uh, in the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke as the forerunner of the Messiah. His birth is predicted uh, by uh, an angel. And then later we see his birth actually happens. His father prophesies over this child. And then now in chapter 3, we were introduced to the adult version of this child. He's now a full-grown adult, and he is now commencing that ministry that was predicted by the angel. And this ministry was summarized for us in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 3, And it says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now this verse 3 is a fulfillment of the prophecy that happens in Isaiah chapter 40, and that's the thing that is quoted in that following line. And then in verse 7 of this chapter, we get essentially a case example of one of John's sermons. So some people argue that this is a summary of many of the sermons that John preached, Some say this is uh, not actually a sermon John preached, but more like a a case example of something he might have done, kind of a summary of his whole ministry. Um, But most scholars would agree that this is one example of a sermon that he preached, and it is an example that kind of illustrates really what verse 3 was talking about. John's whole ministry is preaching repentance and baptism, and this is one example that's kind of like the case example of that ministry. So in this, we have a sermon that John has preached, And we get this kind of dynamic back and forth between him and the crowd towards the end. So that's kind of the setting that we find ourselves in. So verse 6 is the prophecy being fulfilled. And then verse 7 starts with, here's one example of how this prophecy gets fulfilled. And so Luke, as he's explaining this to us, is giving us the whole introduction to John's ministry, then a case example. And then he's going to later, and we'll talk about this next week, he's going to talk about really the conclusion of John the Baptist's ministry as we see Jesus arriving on the scene to kind of take the reins. Uh, after the forerunner. And so we'll start with uh, verse 7, and we're going to kind of break this out into four parts, and I'll give you them as we go. But the first of those parts, the first of the points that we're going to see in the text tonight, is the reality 
of judgment. So for those of you who are taking notes, the reality of judgment. That's the very first thing we see in John the Baptist's preaching. Verse 7 says, He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So the very first thing John the Baptist does in his ministry uh, when, this, when the crowd show up to him is he asks them a question. He first makes an accusation and then he asks a question. Um, and one thing that's very true about John the Baptist preaching that we kind of got the sense of last time and you'll see on display here is he's very clear and straightforward with the kinds of messages that he preaches. He, he's not trying to confuse anyone. He's not some high intellectual scholar who has these great concepts of theology and he's going to try to confuse you into thinking that he's smart and then therefore you'll think more highly of him. He speaks in very plain, very simple language about very high theological truths. One of those truths is the coming wrath. This is one of the same truths that gets denied by most of these people who try to talk about how intelligent they are, and they, they study theology, and then they write long, long books explaining when Jesus was talking about hell, he wasn't really talking about hell, or hell's not really a place that you go. We'll get more there, but John the Baptist is very clear with his preaching. That's one of the marks of any good preacher, is to be clear and direct, and John the Baptist is no exception to this. If you read all through the book of Acts, you see in all of the sermons that the apostles preach and all of the ministers of the gospel, it's very clear. The point they're getting across, they make a beeline straight for it, and they hammer at the point. Okay? They're not trying to confuse anyone. They're trying to be clearly understood so they can call for a response. And John the Baptist has a few things going for him. One is his clear preaching. But the one thing that you don't want to do is if you want to have a successful ministry, there's a few ways to tank your ministry, right? One of the things you could do is be located in an inconvenient place, you know, where people can't really get access to you. If you're starting a church plant, for example, you want to be like located centrally to where everyone is so it's convenient for people to drive and be close, you know, oh, it's only five minutes out of the way, I can go there. John the Baptist starts his ministry in the wilderness. And this is in a place where like the wilderness has no access to water and there's not water lines running places. So people leave the city, leave the comforts of their homes, walk on foot with their whole families to go see and hear John the Baptist preach. So he has one strike against him in his ministry. He's not in a location that's really conducive to a successful public ministry. The other thing that he has uh, that you really don't want to do uh, is when people make this trek out to hear you preach, you don't want to say something that's going to directly offend them before they really feel like they've gotten to warm up to you. And John the Baptist sees the crowds coming, he sees them there, and the first words of it out of his mouth as he preaches this sermon is, you brood of vipers. Okay? Now just think about how counterintuitive these statements are. He's located in the wilderness. He makes an ac ac accusatory statement. And this is going to lead to, we're told, a very fruitful ministry of response. And so we're going to examine how that is the case. If you were to compare this verse 7 uh, in Luke chapter 3 verse 7 to Matthew chapter 3 verse 7, you get the same account of John the Baptist preaching. But in Matthew's account, he says, instead of saying the crowds, John the Baptist sees the crowds and he says this sermon, uh, it says in Matthew's gospel that John the Baptist sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming and he preaches the sermon. Now, this is not to be a contradiction, okay? We're not to assume that Matthew's account disagrees with Luke's account. What we're, what we're getting told in Matthew's account is that while John the Baptist is looking out over the crowds, he notices out of the crowd of people that's in front of him, not just common people like tax collectors and soldiers, he also notices this elite religious class, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So among this whole crowd, there's this particular group, and when he sees this group, while he's addressing the whole crowd, 
he's really with them in mind addressing the sermon. So he's not addressing the sermon uh, to the whole crowd and trying to make broad application. He's going straight for the religious heart of Judaism. He's going straight for the legalism, straight for all of the false beliefs that the Jewish people have. And so when he says that following statement, you brood of vipers, that accusation, he, although he is speaking to the whole crowd, he is with particular focus and with a particular eye talking towards the religious leaders. And this statement, if you want to try to figure out what you brood of vipers means, first off, uh, you can probably even in the English context understand that that's not a kind word. This is supposed to be a derogatory statement. But in a Jewish context, it has all kinds of underlying meaning. Okay? If you remember Genesis chapter 3, we are introduced to the serpent. The serpent is the picture of the accuser, Satan. And he is a snake. And so when John is saying this statement, he's making an allegorical comparison in a Jewish context to the people that are in front of him, and he's, he's attributing them as being a group or a brood of poisonous snakes. So he's aligning them with the serpent. And these people are later going to say to him, we're children of Abraham. And he's saying, no, you're a brood of vipers. And this is close to what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 44, when he says, you are of your father, the devil. And he's saying this to the Sadducees and to the Pharisees. And this statement is to the most religiously looked up to class in all of Jerusalem. These are the people who live the holiest lives, who tithe the best. They wear the best clothes. They never swear. They never take the Lord's name in vain. And this is the group of people he identifies in the crowd and says, you are a brood of vipers. And he's calling out the religious legalism that is present in the Jewish culture. Because uh, there's a plenty of groups that are kind of going in errant ways. There's a small group of faithful people, but the particular bone that he has to pick with these people is not only that they themselves are snakes, but that their words carry a certain poison to them and they mislead the whole rest of the people of Israel. Not only do they hold to the convictions that they do, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they also teach others these beliefs. And the one who is to be a teacher is going to incur the stricter judgment. And so he says, not only are you snakes, but you're poisonous snakes because the things that come out of your mouth, they're poison, and they lead all of the people astray. Jesus will later say that you make a proselyte out of, out of a Gentile, and you make him twice the child of hell that you are. And so he's saying that as you lead people astray, you're guilty not only for yourself, but also for the people you lead astray. And Jesus also says that it would be better for that person to have a stone tied around their neck and to be thrown into the ocean than to mislead one of these children. And so this is a very strict accusatory statement. So we're not to understand John as taking a very innocent-looking crowd and starting with very crass words. He's actually telling it how it is. He's making a clear identification about how it is. He says, therefore, to the crowds who came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? So now John has talked about two very unpopular things. He's talked about their sin problem, and now he's going to talk about the wrath that is due as the punishment for sin. He's assuming that everyone knows about the wrath to come. And the reason that's a safe assumption is because the whole Old Testament talks about these things. In fact, if you were to look at Isaiah chapter 34, verses 8 through 10, it reads, And the streams of Eden shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke will go up forever and ever. Referring to the judgment of God. And if you were to look in your Bibles, and you might have read that same phrase in Revelation chapter 19, Revelation chapter 19 
tells us that the smoke goes up forever and ever. When John is having the vision of the final judgment, he sees the people. And the context of that, if you'll turn in Revelation 19, I'm going to read out of that text, that text that kind of contextualizes the smoke goes up forever and ever. It's the very last book in your Bible. If you're flipping there, it's pretty easy to find. Go to the very end of the Bible, turn two pages back, you'll be there. Revelation 19. I'm starting in verse 1. And after this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And this is John talking about the great prostitute burning forever and ever. And all of the saints see this and they cry praises to God. Hallelujah! Because his judgment is just. And in verse 4, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, observing the scene John has just seen, fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen and Hallelujah. So when the Bible talks about the wrath of God, when Revelation talks about the judgment that is to come, when Isaiah predicts that judgment to come, we are not to understand that as some unjust future occurrence that is coming towards people. John is not afraid to talk about God's wrath. And you and I shouldn't be, when we're sharing the gospel with people, afraid to talk about the wrath of God. In fact, if you try to share the gospel with someone, if you try to share the good news of Jesus Christ with someone, and you start with, Jesus came to die for your sins, you've started halfway through the story. Imagine you're sitting in a doctor's office, right? You're there for an annual checkup, and the doctor comes in beaming, smiling, super excited. And what he says to you is, great news, we have a cure for your cancer, and here it is. And you're sitting in the doctor's office like, I didn't know I had cancer. This is an incomplete picture of what's going on. The person in the room isn't going to be excited about that news because it doesn't sound like good news. But if the person has come into the doctor's office knowing that they have cancer, thinking it is incurable, not knowing how to get rid of it, and then that same scene occurs, everyone's excited. And the reason is because everyone has started at the beginning of the story. We're all on the same page as it goes through. And then when the good news happens, in context, it's actually great news. Because you don't know why you need saving. And most people aren't convinced that they do need saving. In fact, if you look around, most people are aware that sin is present in the world. And they're aware that there's some kind of brokenness. But most people are convinced that the brokenness exists outside, away from them. That there is brokenness, that, you know, sometimes I make bad decisions or you make bad decisions, but that doesn't really make us sinners. You know, the sin is kind of like a cosmic reality. But they don't see it as being intrinsic to who they are. And so they make excuses when they talk about things like this, and they say, well, you know, that, that's a wrath that's coming for sin, but, you know, I'm not a sinner, so I don't really need that escape. The same way that someone sitting in a doctor's office might say, well, I know cancer exists, and you know people out there have cancer, and it's a pretty common thing, but they might not be convinced that they have cancer and that they need the treatment that is being prescribed. And so you and I, as we share the gospel with people, the way you start by sharing the good news is to talk about why you need to pay attention to the good news. And when John asked this question, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, he's asking the question, 
are you being authentic and coming out here to hear about my baptism of repentance? He sees all these crowds coming. He calls them a brood of vipers. And then he says, is this an authentic display of being ready to listen to the message? Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? He's asking them, why are they so convicted of what? Are they scared of the judgment? Are they listening? Are they ready to hear finally what the Lord has to say? God's judgment is designed to provide a sense of urgency to have us actually examine ourselves. And so you'll see then the very next thing that we see in the text in verse 8 is the need for reflection. So we first saw that there's a reality of judgment, and now we see the need for reflection. In verse 8, that question prompts John to continue moving forward. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say for yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You see, verse 7 leads naturally into verse 8. John asks the question, and then he commands the people who hear this question to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And then as soon as those words are out of his mouth, he's already anticipating what the internal reflection might look like. You know, he's commanding them to reflect on their own sin condition, and then he anticipates that voice that you and I all hear when we sin and we do something wrong. And we make that natural excuse that seems to apply just to us. And, but he's not going to give them an out. Because they say their natural excuse as Jewish people is, well, we have Abraham as our father. So, you know, even though we're not perfect, we're Jews, we're circumcised, we keep the law, we tithe, we observe the Sabbath. You know, we have Abraham as our father. We're, we're the Jewish people, the chosen people of God. He can't punish us. And that was pretty predominant in Jewish thought at this time. And he says, you need to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. This excuse about Abraham being your father is not enough to guarantee salvation. Paul argues that it's, a, it's a certainly a good place because you've been given the law, you've been given the testimony of Scripture, you've been given the testimony of the prophets. You should be the most likely people to respond to this message, but it's not sufficient for salvation. Having Abraham as your father is not sufficient. Just because you and I grow up in a Christian home does not automatically make us Christian. Just because you and I go to church does not automatically make us Christian. So when we reflect and we lament of our sins, our repentance shouldn't look like, you know, I'm sorry that I did that, but I go to church. Or I'm sorry I did that, but, you know, my mom and dad are parents. Or I'm sorry I did that, but, you know, I, I, I roll in all Christian circles and we do, you know, mostly Christian things. We listen to mostly Christian music. So by outward demonstration, I look like this, so I should be good on the inside too. He's saying it's not good enough for you to outwardly look like a Jewish person, but you need to inwardly have the reality of a chosen person of God. Paul argues in Romans that a Jew is not one who is a Jew on the outside. Circumcision is not of the flesh, but it's of the heart. And he goes on to say that it's not through Abraham that your offspring will be named, but it's through Jacob. Or, I'm sorry, through, through Isaac. It is the chosen people of God who get the choice. And Abraham and Isaac and the offspring that proceed are the people who are responsible to the promise. They're not just ethnically Jewish, but they're actually the ones who respond in faith to the promise. And we see that John exhorts them to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And then he makes a pretty profound statement. He says, For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Now that seems like a strange application point, but remember, they're in the wilderness. So when he makes a reference to snakes, contextually that makes sense, because probably on the way up they've seen a few snakes on the way. 
So he's making use of the surrounding scenes to paint the picture in his sermon. And then you can imagine, he, there's also probably plenty of rocks in the wilderness. It's not a cultured location. And he says, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. It's not really like a special status to be a child of Abraham because God can do that from stones. In fact, Jesus says when he comes into uh, the Jerusalem, he says when the people are worshiping him, they, they say, silence, silence these disciples from worshiping you. And Jesus says if they were quiet, these stones would cry out and worship me. They make similar illustrations talking about how nature can rightly respond to God. God created this whole world out of nothing. He can raise a whole generation of faithful people up out of this rock. The point is not that they are children of Abraham. The point is that God is sovereign over them. And God is sovereign over all creation. And so they shouldn't look to their Jewishness as something to boast in. But they should recognize that God can do exactly what he's done for them to these rocks. And so it's not a special status necessarily. It's not sufficient. It's not a sufficient status. And he says at the very beginning of this verse to bear fruits. And we're going to talk about in verses 10 and following what that really looks like. But there's a common question that is asked, which is, is this talking about your fruits are the things that save you? The, the fruits that you bear, the works that you do, is this enough for salvation? Because it's not enough to say that we have Abraham as our father. So then, John, what is the thing that is enough to say that we are saved or we're in? And James talks about this in James chapter uh, 2, if you'll turn there with me, James chapter 2, verse 14. James addresses this bearing fruits question. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James, here, is writing about the same thing John is preaching about. John says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and James here says, what kind of faith is the kind of faith that saves and he says, like, what kind of repentance is real repentance? It's the kind of thing that bears fruit. It's the kind of thing that produces evidence. Now, we're not supposed to understand that the fruit is the thing that qualifies you for salvation. It's the internal reality of the believer that qualifies them for salvation. But a believer will bear appropriate fruit. Jesus, when he's talking in Luke chapter 6, says, a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. Can a good tree bear bad fruit? No. Can you get roses from thorn bushes? No. You cannot produce fruit if you are not that kind of tree. If your nature is not in line with these kinds of things, you can't produce that kind of fruit. So you're not saved on the basis of the works that you produce or the fruit that you produce. You're saved as a result of your internal reality, but the fruit points to the internal reality. The fruit that you produce points to what is actually true on the inside. It points to the nature that it comes from. And we see that he commands them to bear fruits. And this is similar preaching. The Apostle Paul uh, says something similar in Acts 26 where he says, uh, bear, uh, you should do the works of repentance or keep doing the works of repentance. He says that he goes around preaching that. So bearing fruit is an essential component or an essential part of repentance. And so he has this command to bear fruits. He says you have no excuses. You need to examine yourself. 
And this leads us to a statement in verse 9. It's really the weight of the moment. The weight of the moment in verse 9. And it says, Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John preaches about the wrath to come. He preaches about the judgment. He commands the people to reflect internally about their reality. And then the very next thing that he says is that this is not some far distant future reality. This is not something that's so far off you can live your life as you please and have a deathbed conversion. He's telling the people who are listening to him, this is not something I want you to go home and, you know, ponder out. This is not something I want you to think or put off or put to the side and, you know, pick it back up later. He's saying that this reality of judgment and this necessity of bearing fruit is so crucial because even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. That's not language that leads us to suggest there's much time remaining. If you're a farmer and you're growing trees and you need fruitful trees to be born, and you examine the trees and you grow them and you cultivate them, and eventually at some point you notice, you know, some are producing fruit and some aren't. And the Gospels describe God the Father as this farmer. He's the one who cultivates all these trees. And we're not at the point in the decision-making process where he's saying, he's just noticing for the first time that these ones bear fruit and these ones don't. We're further along the line than that. We're, we're past the point of him noticing some bear fruit and some don't. We're past the point of him thinking, what should I do with, with the ones who bear fruit? What should I do with the ones who don't? He's already made the determination what he's going to do with trees that bear fruit and what he's going to do with trees that don't. He's already made the determination so much so that he's already gone back and grabbed an axe. And he's probably sharpened that axe. And he's prepared it for the necessary task. And then he's gone back out into the field where these trees grow. And it's not like now he's picking out the trees. It says that the axe is already laid to the root of the trees. Which means the farmer has his axe, and it's at the root, cocked back, ready to go. The moment is imminent. Another, another translation of that, it's laid to the root of the trees. It's aimed at the root of the trees. In English, we have the expression, you know, make a decision, gun to your head. You know, it, it's not, you know, an unloaded gun. Like, this is the moment where the decision must be made. And this is what John is conveying here. The axe is already laid to the root of the trees. Not only is wrath coming as a reality, not only do you need to bear fruit but this is happening soon. And that's the preaching that he's getting across, is this is an urgent decision that must be made. And if you're a Jewish person listening to this, you might still be saying to yourself, you know, we're with the Jewish trees at least, so we'll be okay. But he says that every tree that does not bear good fruit is to be cut down and thrown into the fire, which means the, the farmer is going to go through and look at every single individual tree He's not going to go to this cluster and dismiss them all into that cluster and dismiss them all. He's going to go to every single individual tree, examine them to see if they bear fruit. And the ones that do, great. They are allowed to remain and grow and continue to produce fruit. But the ones that don't, he goes around with his axe, laid to the root of the tree, and this is the moment that we find ourselves in. If you would like a, a cross-reference or a way in which Jesus talks about this same idea, 
Uh, If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 6, I believe it is. Luke chapter 6. And in Luke chapter 6, it is verse 43. This is when Jesus is teaching about the fruits. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. Jesus is teaching not that the fruits are the things that condemn or save, but that the internal condition is. But the fruits are a result or a product of that internal condition. In Luke chapter 10, in Luke chapter 10, you see one example of this where Jesus encounters the Good Samaritan. And he has this conversation, this back and forth dialogue. And he says, you know, what, what, are, the, what are the two greatest commandments? And he says, you know, Love God and love your neighbor. And then Jesus says, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. And he, desiring to justify himself, said, and who is my neighbor? And now out of his mouth comes something that reveals an actual internal reality. It's not that this word is the thing that condemned him. But he says something, and it it really points to the heart posture that he has when he's approaching this conversation. He speaks out of the abundance of his mouth. Or out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth opens up and he says, well, who's my neighbor? He's trying to make excuses for what's about to follow. And so here you have this, this dynamic, this, this fruit being produced out of the abundance of what's true inside. It says, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the last cross-reference on this point is John 15. If you'll turn there with me, John 15, 6. This is talking about the Father as the vine dresser. It says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Then verse 6 says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So this is Jesus talking about the sifting. The branches that bear fruit versus the branches that don't. The trees that bear fruit versus the trees that don't. And John the Baptist, as the forerunner of this same type of preaching, says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is the teaching, and this should point you back to what we read in Revelation 19, where it says that fire is not a temporary fire that gets quenched. It's a fire that goes up forever and ever, where the worm does not die and the flesh does not burn. That is the kind of fire that they're talking about, the kind of judgment that is eternal and ongoing and everlasting. But then there is good news on the side of this. Remember, we have to tell the full story on the front end, and there's good news on the back end, which is that there is a means of escape from this coming judgment. There is a means of escape. 
In fact, Scripture talks about how Jesus is the means of escape. He's the way in which you, if you're a bad tree, can change your nature to become a good tree. Because it's not you who can change your nature, but it is Jesus Christ and his saving power that changes your nature. In fact, we, we read in Acts 17, 29, and I'll just read this for you, Acts 17, 29, it says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. Jesus Christ is the judge, but he's also the one who is raised from the dead. And then to explain that further, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul tells us that for they themselves report to us the kind of reception we had among you and how we turned from God, to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, notice, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The wrath is coming. The moment is urgent. You need to examine yourself and bear fruit, but the ultimate escape from this wrath is Jesus, who saves us from the wrath to come. He's both the executor of that final judgment and the means of salvation by which we escape it. So he is fully present in this picture. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. But the, the implication there is the good trees that bear good fruit, they're saved. They escape the judgment, and they are preserved and kept in the Father, the vine dresser who prunes them and makes them even more fruitful as he grows them. And the means of escape is Jesus Christ, and we need to recognize in ourselves that that is the only means of escape. Something that's true in the animal kingdom uh, is this thing called mimicry. And I was a biology major in college. I spent four years learning about this kind of stuff, so bear with me while I tell you this illustration, okay? There's a bunch of different kinds of mimicry. I've since forgotten most of them. But the general idea in mimicry is this, is that you, as a creature, could pretend to be something you're not so that you can incur the benefits that that thing has in nature. So for example, there are poisonous snakes and poisonous frogs that exist out in the wild. Predators have learned not to try to eat those snakes or eat those frogs. And the reason they've learned is because they've eaten some of them and they've either been bitten or they've eat, ingested the frog, they've died from the poison or they've become very sick from the poison. And so over time, predators learn what to and what not to eat. But there are other creatures that don't have that same kind of poison that instead, they're like, you know what? I can get by, not by being poisonous myself, but by looking like the poisonous thing. And so what they do is, with a very close and a very accurate kind of mimicry, they pretend to look like or become the thing that actually produces the poison. So they pretend to imitate or become like that thing. But what is true in every single case of mimicry, some are better than others at mimicking, but what's true in every single case is that it doesn't possess like the essential quality that makes that thing dangerous in the first place. The frogs that imitate other poisonous frogs, they themselves are not poisonous. So if you were to examine them, not on the content of what they look like on the outside, but on the content of what's true internally, one has poison and one does not. One is the authentic thing and one is the imitation. And with snakes, this is the same thing. Some have poison, some don't. The ones that don't have poison pretend to be like the ones that do so they can incur all the benefits and get avoided by predators. But if a predator does decide to attack that snake, it's out of luck because it actually doesn't have the poison to defend itself. 
It is pretended to be like something it is not. And Jesus is teaching through John the Baptist, and later he himself comes and teaches the same message, that it's not enough for you to pretend to produce fruit. You can't make this fruit up. Well, you could. You could produce an imitation kind of fruit, because all of the fruit that is born out of this, a lot of it can be accomplished strictly through legalism. A lot of it can be accomplished by doing all the right things. Some of this fruit is, you know, patience and generosity. And we, we see that the fruits are external works that people produce. But Jesus tells us that even in the presence of those works, there is still a sifting that needs to be done, which is that some people produce the fruit and actually that's their internal reality. They have an authentic fruit. And some people produce the fruit and it's simply a mockery. It's simply, it's simply an imitation of the authentic thing. And we know that that's a reality, but we ourselves are not called to sift that reality. Sometimes that bears itself out in this lifetime. Sometimes you leave that to the judge on the other side of eternity. But what is true in every case is that if you are saved, if you are authentically repentant, you do bear that fruit because it's in your nature. So if you don't see these kinds of fruits present in your life, it's a good question to ask yourself, why do I not bear those fruits? Why is that not something that I naturally produce? Because it is the, the presence of the true Christian, the one who has the Holy Spirit dwelling in him, that bears out these fruits. It is the presence of authentic repentance that bears out these kinds of things. So we've talked a lot about what these kinds of fruits are, that you need to bear those fruits. John the Baptist, like I said, is very clear, so he gets very specific as to what those kinds of fruits are. And that's really verses 10 through 14, and we're going to see the proof of repentance in 10 to 14, the proof of repentance. I'm going to read it as one long section again, and then we're going to break it apart. It says, And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share it with the one who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So these are the fruits that John the Baptist is saying you should bear. The, he's telling you what the authentic fruit is on the front end. It's very practical. It gets straight to the heart of what is true. Okay? But you'll notice a common theme or a common question that gets asked by all three groups. What then shall we do? That's the common question that gets asked. And a lot of commentators will point out, and I didn't notice this at first, but a lot of commentators will point out that this question, what then shall we do, is a response of submission. Not every time this question is asked is automatically an indication of repentance, but when the question is asked, you should pay attention to what comes next. Because what you see in all the other Gospels is instead of asking this kind of question, by and large, the Pharisees continually ask Jesus to do things. They continually ask him to perform signs. They continually ask him to prove who he is. They continually ask him, who is he? But they never ask him, out of response for what he is, what should we do? Some do, so I'm not saying it's a universal, but that general question, what then shall we do, is kind of an indication that some kind of change is going to happen. This question is the same one that gets asked in Luke chapter 10, 29. We read that a second ago, the, the Good Samaritan. That's the same kind of question that gets asked, and you notice that that Pharisee immediately has a rebuttal. That person immediately has something that he says in response. He tries to get himself an out. 
But you'll notice in each of these cases when John the Baptist says these words, there is no rebuttal. There's kind of like a silence acceptance of what has been said. They're not trying to create caveats after the statement is given. Like in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus uh, is interacting with this person and he says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor. And immediately the response is, well, who's my neighbor? He's trying to create an out or an escape. But these people don't try to do that. In each case, they respond appropriately by just accepting the exhortation. And so we'll break them apart one by one. And so we first, the first group we get is the crowds. And they ask him the question, what then shall we do? And he answered them. And this is, remember, the crowds, the people who are there initially. So he's talking now to the whole group. This is a general exhortation of response. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. So what he's saying is, if you have two tunics, meaning you have an abundance of tunics, you're supposed to share out of that abundance with someone who doesn't have tunics. Now, in this culture, you might, it might be strange. It's not like he's talking about a tunic and then a backup tunic. He's talking about someone who has so much clothes that they can wear like an under tunic and an over tunic, meaning they have like an undergarment and an overgarment. And he, what he's saying is if you have two tunics, if you're in this wealthy situation where you can literally put on two items of clothing where most people can't, and you see someone who doesn't have access to this same means of wealth, that a right response, a right kind of generosity that should stir in your heart is to give from your abundance to that person. And you might immediately be thinking to yourself, well, I don't have any abundance. But I'm pretty sure if you went home and you looked at your closet and you looked at all the things that you have and you looked at your living conditions, you might reflect and say, you know, I do have far more than enough. I have been given an abundance of wealth. In fact, in the day and age that we live, we are living right now, even as like middle, even lower class Americans, far more even wonderfully than kings did in ages past because of the kinds of access we have to running water. Everyone has a bathroom and a shower in their home. We have stocks of food lined up for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. If we didn't make another grocery trip, we could probably survive off just the food in our house for quite a long time. We have this huge abundance, this huge surplus of stuff. And what John is telling the crowd is, out of this abundance, if you have two tunics, share out of your abundance. Because he says, if you have food, do likewise. Out of the abundance of the things that you have, give to the people who don't have. And that's a pretty straightforward statement, right? It's a statement of Christian generosity. Voluntary giving of the things that you have makes a value statement. It says, I think that these things that I have are valuable. They're a blessing from God. But they're not a blessing for me to hoard for myself. They're a blessing God has given me to go ahead and bless the rest of the world with. And we make statements like, I think people are valuable, not money is valuable, when we give out of the abundance of the things we've been given to that person. Now, this isn't saying give into your poverty. This is not saying if you're broke, you're supposed to give things away. Because later in Scripture, we see that the person is supposed to take care of his own family. He's got to feed his own family. And if he doesn't do that, he's worse than an unbeliever. So we're not saying go broke. But what he is saying is out of the abundance of things that you do have, go ahead and give it away because you're making a value statement about people when you do that. You're saying, I think this person is worth way more than the extra money that I have lying around. And most of us spend our whole lives in this financially, uh, we, we treat finances like they're this scarce resource. And we store up savings accounts and we store up investment portfolios and we store up all of these additional means of safety income. We have emergency funds and we have savings accounts and then you have retirement funds and you have all these backups to your backups to your backups. 
And we do the same thing with food. We have, you know, the food in our fridge and then the stuff in the pantry and the stuff that's ready in the lunchbox today. And we have all this abundance of food. And we have all this abundance of secured paychecks. You know, we get paid every two weeks or sometimes twice a month. We have all this abundance of consistent stuff. And even with that, Americans typically find it most difficult to be generous, even out of their abundance. The most wealthy people on earth find it difficult to give out of their abundance to other people. You know, we're not quite saved up fully for retirement, so we, we couldn't do that yet. You know, once I'm fully saved up, then I'll, you know, give out of my abundance. But God says, you should give out of your abundance. It's an appropriate response to give away your wealth as a response of what he has done for you. And he continues with this kind of theme in his exhortations of money and finances. Because the next group that comes up to him is the tax collectors. And they're the people who particularly get wealthy even by unrighteous means. And they say, they come to him and they say, teacher, what shall we do? And his exhortation to them is, collect no more than what you are authorized to do. So you have this group of people that is particularly wealthy and they have their wealth typically from unrighteous means. And in the taxing system in Rome, it was not, you know, a legal practice particularly, but you could very easily get away with taking more than your cut from the people. And so as you tax people, you're supposed to take the taxes that the government demands, but typically what they would do is they'd also take an extra cut to the side for themselves. That's on top of what the government's paying for them to actually do this work. And so these tax collectors are making a lot of money off of a lot of people's backs. And what he's saying to them is don't quit being a tax collector. You know, he's not a political revolutionary. He's not trying to get rid of the taxation system. What he is saying, though, is as you exist in that career, as you do that job, as you go forth in your job, having a response of repentance demands a certain kind of integrity. The fruit of your generosity, the fruit of you submitting to the lordship of God is by having a certain amount of integrity. So just because you can get away with something, don't, don't take that opportunity. Don't take advantage of it. Because you're like an unbeliever when you do things like that. And for us, there's, there's plenty of things we can get away with in our jobs. Sometimes you have a boss that is particularly lenient and they don't check on your work all the time and so you might, you know, take extra breaks here and there. Because you can. And even if that's the culture of your company, you might think that that's a normative practice. And this was the culture of the tax collectors, to take extra money. And just because everyone's doing it doesn't mean it's okay. John the Baptist doesn't say, quit your tax collecting job, you know, and, and go into full-time ministry. He says, in the job that you're already in. God has a plan and a place for you in that job. Stay there and work with integrity. And in doing so, you're going to produce a certain kind of witness that is countercultural to every other tax collector. Because now you're the only one who doesn't do the thing that everyone th thinks is okay. This is the same thing you see all the time in college students. You know, you'll, you might hang out in a certain crowd where they particularly like to party or to drink or to sleep around. And if you become a believer, he's not saying leave that group. But if you, you are a believer and you run in those crowds, you might be the only one who's saying no to the things everyone else thinks is okay. And now all of a sudden people notice you're the one who's doing the thing that no one else is doing. And now you've created an awesome opportunity for all kinds of questions. And even today in Indianapolis, you get this all the time where people, even Christians, will like live together before they're married. And so if you choose to not do that, you create all kinds of interesting conversations. Why do you choose to do those things? You know, why are you choosing to live your life in the way that you're living it? Why do you go to church on Sunday? You know, everyone else is watching football. Why do you go to church on Sunday? Why do you do the things that you do? It creates all kinds of interesting conversation just by living your lifestyle in a certain way. And then you have this last group of people that ask that same question, and we too, what shall we do? And this is the soldiers, right? The people who are serving the Roman government that we talked about last week is oppressing all of the Jewish people. 
and you have this Roman government, and you have these soldiers, and these are soldiers who most commentators today would agree that these are like Judean soldiers. They're Judean police, which means they're Jewish people who work in submission to the Roman government to carry out these tax collecting orders. And so these Judean police come up, and they're with the tax collectors, and they say, and we, what shall we do? And he says to them, notice he doesn't say, stop being a soldier, you're part of an oppressive regime, you should stop doing that. What he says to them is, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. The command that he gives to the people, to the soldiers, is the authority and the power that you've been given is not something you should wield on people. You should have that authority and power, but it's been given to you not to extort people, not to take their money, even if you can get away with it. It's been given to you to keep the peace. So you do honor to God who gives the authority to government by doing this in an ethical way, by not extorting people, by not shaking them down, by not taking money that doesn't belong to you. And you'll notice that each of these three exhortations has to do with finances or has to do with wealth. Right? It's a generosity that people are commanded. But then the, the last statement that he gives to the soldiers is kind of true. It, it kind of rings back to all the other statements that he's given. And that is, he says, and be content with your wages. That's an interesting statement. Because he's just told them, don't shake people down. And now he's giving the people, the soldiers, a positive command. He says, don't do this, don't do this, but do this instead. And he's saying the reason you would shake someone down is because you already have created a whole environment where you're discontent with the kind of money you make, so now you think it's an acceptable practice to take money from other people. And this actually echoes back to the tax collectors, where the reason they steal money from people is because they think they deserve more than they're getting. Or maybe because they can get away with it, but internally they think that they're not getting their fair cut, so they start taking from other people. And so he's saying kind of the cure to this whole cycle that you've produced for yourself is to be content with your wages to be content with what you have because it creates a certain kind of generosity when you're content with what the Lord has given you. And this is, all, this is true all over the place for wealth. In fact, in uh, 1 Timothy 6, and this is the last cross-reference we'll look at, 1 Timothy 6, verses 8 through 10, if you'll turn there with me. You'll notice how similar this is in language to what John the Baptist is saying. 1 Timothy 6, and we're going to be starting in verse 8, says, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and to, and to destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Here's Timothy writing to a post-resurrection Christian world. And they have the exact same problem that the pre-resurrection Jews have, which is an issue with discontentment that leads to a desire for wealth that doesn't rightly belong to them and a lust for riches that isn't rightly theirs. And it says that this leads to all kinds of harmful desires. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And it's even led, he says, some people away from the faith. And he's saying the cure for this is not to discipline yourself necessarily, but it's to have a heart posture of contentment with the things that you make. And you might examine yourself in the job that you work and the station in life that you're at. You might ask yourself, in what ways are you discontent with the kinds of things that you have access to now? Maybe you think that you should have more money given to you in a, weekly, in a bi-weekly paycheck than you already get. Maybe you think that you should have gotten a promotion over someone else. 
Maybe you think that, you know, the thing that you do is of particular worth, and that should have been acknowledged more by other people. And you have all this kind of discontentment, and this breeds in you an environment which causes you to covet and causes you to lust for things that are not yours. Maybe you're discontent with the fact that, you know, you wanted to be married and you're not. And this causes you to covet and lust after relationships that shouldn't belong to you. Or maybe, you know, you're in a, in a, in a relationship and, you know, you covet something that's not your own. And this kind of discontentment, it, also is, it definitely breeds a, a, a lust for money, but it breeds all other kinds of lusts as well. Because what you're saying is, I want things that God isn't giving me in my station right now, and I'm going to make those things my own. And that's the, that's the root of all kinds of covetousness. So he says, be content. And particularly, he says, be content with your wages. And the reason all of these hit on money is because money is something we all have an experience with. Money is something that, even in an American context, 2,000 years later, how much more relevant could this statement be? Be content with your wages. As if we, as a people, as he knew, like, we were going to struggle with this. And he did, because he knows what people are. And by God, he's, he's declaring the same kind of truth that all kinds of preachers will declare today, which is your money has a unique way to snare your heart and to create a certain kind of captivation with it and to create a kind of way in which you, in every other area of your life, you're generous, but with this thing, you're not generous. And it's just true in America. And so people lust after their money, and he's saying, be content with your stuff. And out of the abundance that you have, give generously because God will look after you. God is sovereign. He takes care of his people. And matter of fact, the, the reason you might know a poor person to give your money to, the reason you might have an abundance, is so you can prove the authenticity of your faith by giving generously. Not so you can earn your faith because you sinned and so you've got to give a little bit more, but he's saying you can prove the authenticity of what's true internally by giving, by being generous, by being the kind of person that is content in all things, content in all circumstances. This command of contentment goes all throughout Scripture. Paul says be content even in prison, rejoice in suffering. Be content in all things, but particularly with wages, is what John the Baptist is talking about here. And so in the, in the full through line of this text, you get kind of this, this proof um, of essentially like fruits that are worthy of repentance. How do you bear the kind of fruit that proves that you repented? How do you, how do you live the kind of life that proves the authenticity of your faith? He's saying there's a wrath to come, you've got to bear a certain kind of fruit, and these are the ways in which you can prove the authenticity of your faith. The way that J.C. Ryle said it was that Sin forsaken is one of the best evidences of sin forgiven. So if you turn away from a certain kind of sin, it is one of the best evidences that you've actually been forgiven of that sin. The kind of person who authentically repents of a sin is the kind of person who turns away from that sin and not just stops doing it, but actually stops wanting to do it and stops lusting after that thing. Now, this is not true across the board, but he said that it is one of the best evidences of sins that you've actually been forgiven of because they're sins you've actually repented of. Many of us repent with words only but not with a heart posture. Or we repent of the consequences of sin but not of the sin itself. And what John the Baptist through these practical exhortations and J.C. Ryle commenting on this passage says is that if you've turned away from a sin and you've walked in the other direction, if you're the kind of person who gives generously, you're the kind of person who gives a shirt off your back to somebody else, you're the kind of person who is content with your wages, you don't lust after things that aren't your own, you're content in all things, He's saying it's probably a good source of proof that you've been forgiven of the kind of lust that you had before you became a Christian, the kind of wealth you desired before you were a Christ follower. Because Christ Jesus is the thing that satisfies us in every way, so we can be content in all kinds of things. And so this is the exhortation that we should be people who authentically repent and bear the fruits of those kinds of repentance. And this is not something we fabricate. This is something we do in the power of the Holy Spirit 
by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he has purchased for us a forgiveness of debt that we could never have paid back. And out of the abundance of this forgiveness, out of the abundance of this escaping of the wrath of God, it should just make us a joyous and a generous people. We should be marked by the kind of people who are willing to share our tables with other people, to invite them over for dinner, to open up our homes, to cook meals for people, to take in orphans and to care for widows. James in his letter later says that religion that is pure and undefiled is taking care of the widows and the orphan and keeping yourself unstained from the world. And as Christians, as a community, we need to be marked by these kinds of things. And I fear that too often we're known for the kind of preaching that John starts with in this passage, but not the kind of living that this preaching leads to. We're known for being the kind of people who come down hard on sin, but not the kind of people who ourselves live out of the abundance and the freedom that this kind of forgiveness of sin should produce. And this is a fair accusation, I think, of the church. We need to come down hard on sin. That's not what I'm saying is start being light on sin. But when you come down hard on sin, you need to know you're coming down hard because there's a means of escape, and the means of escape produces a whole new kind of lifestyle that is different than the American dream, and it's different from what most Christians even live today because most people live in bondage to the very kind of financial covetousness that we just talked about. And maybe even some of you are reflecting in your life in the ways in which you live in bondage to some of these things. And what John is saying to these people, what shall we do? He's saying, bear the kind of fruit that proves that thing no longer holds you captive. Not that, you know, giving it away somehow releases you from captivity, but bear the kind of fruit that leads you to be proven free of this kind of sin. And that is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to give us that kind of freedom. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word to us this evening. Lord, I thank you for the contemporary message that we get from Scripture every time we open it. That this is fresh to our eyes and fresh to our hearts. And Lord, I pray that this would penetrate deep into us. That we would not be those people who look in the mirror and as soon as we leave, we forget what we saw. But we would be the kind of people who walk throughout our whole week moved and changed by the encounters we have with Scripture. And by the encounters that we have with your spirit which lives within us to convict us of sin and to allow us to live in holiness and increased righteousness. Lord, we pray your grace upon us this evening as we continue in worship. And we pray that throughout this week that you would be protective over us. That you would go before us to help us be freed of the very kinds of sins in which we've just talked about. Lord Jesus, without you, this is all just legalism. Without you, this is all just us fabricating something that we don't have. Lord, I pray for the authentic thing to be true in each and every one of us, that your spirit would move to free us of sin so that we could live as a people who actually look like we are living for the next life and not for this one. And Lord, I pray that your grace would be upon us as we close out in our time of worship. In your holy and in your precious name, amen.